Well, I discovered a couple of things about Houston this week that I did not know before. First, like the rest of the country, Houston understands the season called winter and the, da- and the dangerous three-letter word that comes with it, I-C-E. But the wonderful thing about Houston and winter is that you do it for about two weeks and then you move on to other opportunities and other seasons, and that's how it should be. Second, I discovered that the Heights extends a good distance north of here, north at least as far as 2220 Beavis, where the crisp Italian restaurant and pizzeria is located, and where I last night joined Ann Bayless and Susanna Kathleen and John Watson, and we ate salad and pizza and told life stories, and came away grasping the great wonder of the possibility, and I believe it to be true, that our lives, that is your life and my life, have come together for such a time as this. We're here for a reason. The title of our sermon this morning is the question that you've asked yourself, probably, that people have asked you, no doubt, and I'd like to explore today. The question is, why in the world do you go to church (laughs) on Sunday? But before we get started, I'd like to read a passage of Scripture from the book of Acts. The passage is chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This comes from the second volume of Luke's two-volume work, the first being the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, and the second volume being the beginning of the church, that is, the people who gave their lives to follow Jesus of Nazareth. So this is from volume 2, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at 3 in the afternoon, which is the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple that's called Beautiful, sat him down there in order that he might beg alms of those who were entering into the temple. Now when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I don't possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, walk And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
So why do you go to church on Sunday? Yeah? Oh, that's a good question, you say. Let's see. I go to church on Sunday to worship God. Yeah. I go to church on Sunday to worship God. Good. How about you? Well, I go to church uh, to be edified. And if you like, I would turn to the passage in Paul that explains the correct motives for attending church on Sunday. No, no, that's fine. Edification and worship. Those are the correct answers to the question, why do you go to church on Sunday? So let me be a little more specific. Why do you go to church on Sunday? More specific? Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, Singing, okay. Prayers, sermon, thank you. The Lord's Supper, okay. Or maybe, maybe, maybe fellowship. These are all good answers. But let me ask it again. Why do you go to church on Sunday? What? You want me to be honest? Yeah. Why do you go to church on Sunday? Well, I guess I go to church out of habit. It's a good habit. It's kind of like brushing your teeth in the morning. Okay, and you? Well, I go to church because my parents instilled the habit in me. You want me to be honest? I want you to be honest. I go to church as a long-term investment. I have in mind my children. I'm thinking of my marriage. Sunday school functions like a support system for my beliefs. Adults here are kind of like extended family. My husband and I, we want positive examples of marriage. Church is the best investment that I know. Okay, how about you? I go to church to meet people. I mean good people. I'm looking for honest people, people who have morals, people you can trust. Seems to me that church is the best place to find those kind of people. How about you? Well, I go to church just to feel better about my day. I mean, I could sleep in. I could read the paper and drink coffee. I've tried that, but when I go to church on Sunday, my day just goes better. Okay. And you? Why do you go to church? When I was a little girl, maybe nine or ten years old, I was sitting in church, and the sun was coming through the stained glass windows of beaming into the sanctuary. And it was just after communion, and I was sitting next to my grandparents on one side and my mother on the other side, and the whole congregation was singing this hymn that came to be my favorite hymn. And at that precise moment, I felt this warm, compelling spiritual feeling that came over me. And I haven't felt it ever since, but I keep coming back to church hoping that I'll feel it again. Thank you. How about you? Now you. Oh, you don't want to hear from me? Yeah, I do. Why do you come to church? (laughs) Well, I'm in real estate. And church is a great place to do business. I'll be straight with you. Church is where I make money. Church people are my best customers, my best network. I just wish this church was a little bigger. (laughs) Thank you. Why do you go to church? You. Why? Well, I'm here to find me a wife. You know, there's women in the tavern, there's women at the church, and women at the church is just better 
women than the women in the tavern. Well, what do you think of this answer? The lame man went to the temple looking for money. Alms, the text said. Silver and gold, marks, crowns, francs, dollars. He went to the temple gate hoping to enhance his collection of Benjamin Franklin's. The lame man went to the church for motives that we might have judged beneath the ones articulated in Scripture, worship and edification. And what he got was something that he hadn't anticipated. In fact, there's a lot of unanticipated activity in our story. The lame man came for money, and he got healed. He didn't expect that. James and John came to the temple to pray and ended up performing a miracle. They didn't expect that. The religious leaders thought that Jesus' power and influence had died with him, and then something happened to those once scattered disciples who are now filled with power, and they didn't expect that. And even the crowd. crowd knew this man was crippled, begged at the temple gate, They didn't anticipate that he had moved by his own legs. Surprise, 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 surprise. But back to the question, why do you go to church on Sunday? I know a lot of people who come to church with mixed motives. Divorced, single mother looking for a hand, looking for a shoulder. Addicted, looking for a sober voice and an understanding heart. Friendless looking for a connection, broke, looking for a meal. People who come to church with broken lives and broken hearts, some of us are emotionally lame and we limp into church, spiritually lame, and we tiptoe into service with low expectations. A single mother who will settle for a free babysitter for one hour while she sits through Bible class. A friendless man who will settle for two or three handshakes and a courteous good morning. What is Luke saying in this story to us? On the first reading, I get the impression that the focus is on the lame man at the temple gate. I get that impression because of the quantity of words that Luke has used to describe the man after the healing. He leaped and he stood And he walked, and he entered, and he was walking, and he was leaping. It's hard to take your eyes off this guy. It's like the quarterback who takes the snap and moves and throws. Listen to the verbs. Listen to those descriptive words. Luke putting the focus, it seems, on the lame man, leaping and standing and walking and so on. What is Luke saying in this story to us? Second time I read through it, I get the impression the focus might be on Peter. Peter says, look at us. And then Luke says, they fixed, he fixed his eyes on them. Peter appears to be the one getting all the attention. That's what the crowd thinks. That's what the religious leaders think. They grab Peter and take him aside. And then maybe on a third reading, we're supposed to focus on the crowd. Consider all the action words they get. They saw. They took note. They were filled with amazement. Maybe we are supposed to fix our eyes on the crowd. After all, Luke's been keeping attendance. There were 3,000 who were baptized on the day of Pentecost. When Peter 
gets the undue attention from the crowd, however, he tells us where the story's focus is. Listen to him. The miracle happens, he says, in the name of Jesus, chapter 3, verse 6. And later when he preaches a sermon about it, he explains that that miracle happened by, in the name of Jesus. And later when he's called in before the religious leaders, he says, in the name of Jesus, this happened, chapter 4, verse 7. Of course, the problem in that reading was that we didn't see or hear God do a thing. We were so caught up with the reaction of the crowd who saw and took note and were filled with amazement. We saw the movement of Peter. Look at us, he said, and they fixed their gaze upon him. Or the man once lame, leaping and walking and entering and leaping. That we missed the passive words that Luke uses when he says, and his ankles and his feet were strengthened. Peter clarifies it for us, making sure we don't miss it. Jesus did it, he says. Jesus did it, he repeats. Jesus did it, he explains to the religious leaders. And now we know where to look. Now we know who did the miracle. But back to our question. Why do you go to church on Sunday? Suppose it's true that you get what you came for. You're looking for better behaved children, and they get better behaved. You look for a better marriage, and that's what you get. You look for more customers, and voila. Look for a husband, and now you're married. Looking for good friends, that's what you get. All these wants and needs and more may well be satisfied at church. But the question I'd like to ask is, what is God after? What does God want from you at church? Maybe it's a shoulder, maybe it's a hand, maybe it's an ear, maybe it's a pocket full of customers, or maybe it's more. Maybe God is after more than those apparent needs. Maybe God is after for us what was done for this man through Peter, done in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name. I sense your resistance. I sense your resistance to that phrase, maybe thinking I sound like a tele-evangelist, in the name of Jesus. But in the name of Jesus was Luke's phrase first, and he uses it with intention throughout the second volume. He says, in the name of Jesus at the most critical moments in the story. Baptism, at baptism, people receive the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. The Sumerians receive forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, chapter 8. Cornelius receives the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus in chapter 10. The Ephesians receive forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus in chapter 19. In the name of Jesus, forgiveness, our deepest need, our greatest want, forgiveness in the name of Jesus. I knew a couple who were members of the congregation where I was minister. They had suffered long over an affair that she had had two decades before and two states away, but he couldn't come to forgive her. Their most basic need was left unmet. And I knew a man struggling with sexual preference before he came out. And when he came out, 
His father could not handle the indignity and the shame that he associated with his son's sexual identity. Years passed. The pain and the family strain was nearly unbearable, a cloud over every holiday, a cloud over every birthday, rejection and distance and coolness. And eventually, the father came near the end of his days, and the son, now at the bedside of his dying father, leaned over to kiss his dad goodnight, and he said these words. He said, Dad, I love you. I forgive you. And tears were shed, and the man died in peace. I listened to a sermon. I was in an audience listening to a sermon with a, a bunch of vignettes, story after story after story, and the preacher had a recurring refrain that he wove all the way through the sermon, and the recurring refrain was, will he forgive us? Will God forgive us? Will God forgive us? And he held that tension till the very, very end of the sermon when he said, will God forgive us? And then he paused, and then he said, I think he already has. And when the preacher said those words, the response of the congregation was immediate and audible. Men and women, men and women were trying to hold back their tears, sobs being choked back. When I tell that story to my preaching students, I emphasize the form of the sermon and how, how essential it is to hold the tension. But of course, the truth much deeper is this. It's the depth of the content and our profound need for forgiveness. No wonder they cried. The story of ours begins with Peter and John going to the temple to pray, and it ends with the church at prayer. Of course, the religious leaders don't take well to the healing and especially the preaching about Jesus. They threaten the disciples of Jesus. They threaten to kill them if they continue to preach Jesus. And the church responds by asking God not for revenge, not to even end the threat, but for boldness. And that's how this story ends. The story ends with Christians living for something larger than themselves. And listen to this, in the name of Jesus, believers were willing to suffer, chapter 5. In the name of Jesus, believers were even willing to rest, risk their lives, in chapter 15. In the name of Jesus, people were willing to die for their faith because they had something larger than themselves to live for. Why do you come to church on Sunday? Most of us are here for reasons that are somewhere between the noble and biblically correct and the outright base and manipulative motives. We, all of us, are looking for something, searching for something. We're looking for friends and family and extended family. We, all of us, are hungry for something, hungry for a good feeling, hungry for a spiritual moment, and we come to church struggling with the realities of our imperfect lives, our personal defects, our sins, the harm we've done to others, even those whom we love the most. We come full of it, bitterness, short fuses and long memories, the knowledge of our failures and the knowledge of others. And then we sit next to our spouse or across the auditorium 
from the one person whom we most cannot forgive. We come to church and we hear these words. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. We come to church and we pray, our Father in heaven, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We come to church and we have the opportunity in the name of Jesus to forgive and to be forgiven. Whatever your motive, whatever your understanding, may God take you in the name of Jesus and do as he did to the characters in Jesus' story. Give you something more than what you came for, something to live for, something that's larger than yourself, something deeper than any need you can articulate in the name of Jesus.